Welcome to Pop Culture Happy Hour. I'm Linda Holmes. I'm the editor of NPR's pop culture and entertainment blog, Monkey See. I'm here in the studio today with Glenn Weldon. Hi, Glenn. Hey, Linda. Well, as you listen to this, uh, we are getting ready to go on tour. Mm -hmm. Uh, As you may know, we are doing four dates on the West Coast, followed by the Now Hear This podcast festival in Anaheim. So the only one of those dates in our coming up tour, just while we're here, that has tickets left is the Portland date, which is at Revolution Hall on October 19th. And you can get those tickets at nprpresents.org if you want to come see us in Portland. And that is the night of the last presidential debate, and they're opening the doors early so you can go in and uh, drown your sorrows uh, with the drinker six and then see us. Exactly. We will not be talking about the election, but uh, you can catch up with the debate beforehand on their big movie screen at the theater if you buy yourself a ticket. So uh, so there's that. And then also there are still tickets to the Now Hear This uh, Festival in Anaheim, which has a lot of really good shows mm-hmm. coming out. Criminal is going to be there. Jordan, Jesse Go, a bunch of shows that we really like and admire will be there and we will be there. And those tickets are at NowHearThisFest.com. And you can see the schedule. We're on Saturday the 29th. And uh, so those two two things we still have tickets for. Keep up with us on Facebook, facebook.com slash PCHH, and on Twitter at PCHH, because it's possible we may be able to release a couple tickets for our Seattle date on October 17th or our San Francisco date on October 21st with Mallory Ortberg or our LA date on October 23rd with Kumail Nanjiani. So again, keep up with us on social media, and we will tell you if we can release any tickets for those shows, because you never know. But because we are about to head out on this tour. We have a special show this week. Rather than our regular roundtable, we're going to bring you some uh, terrific conversations with uh, people whose whose work we like. First up, we have a conversation between Ari Shapiro and two of the actresses who are in uh, Queen of Katwe. Mm-hmm. Queen of Katwe is a uh, is a film about a young chess prodigy. And Ari spoke to two of the actresses in the film. And it's a it's a lovely movie, and it's a very lovely interview. The friendship between these two actresses seems very sincere and genuine and very warm. Uh, so playing the prodigy is Medina Naluanga, and playing her mother is a an actress you might know from some other fine work, Lupita Nyong'o. And Ari Shapiro, for All Things Considered, had this conversation with them. This is a longer take on that conversation because we really thought that you would enjoy hearing a little bit more from these actresses. So let's hear it. Lupita, you had the knowledge of acting. Medina, Mm -hmm. you had knowledge of Uganda. Were Mm -hmm. there things that you taught Lupita about this place where the film was set, this place where you were filming, this place you call home? Yeah, there are very many things I told her. (laughs) Like, I told her how to make Ugandan food. (laughs) You also taught me Luganda itself. Yeah, Luganda also. You taught me how to sing all those lullabies. Luganda is the language. Can you sing us a lullaby that you learned, Lupita, that you learned from Medina? We can sing it together. Okay. You lead me. In some ways, your backgrounds are very different from one another. Uh, Lupita, you grew up in Kenya in a family with many opportunities and privileges. Mm -hmm. And Medina, I I understand you grew up in a poor neighborhood of Uganda. Mm -hmm. But Lupita, did you see a reflection of yourself in Medina in some ways? 
I yeah. <laughs> I I did and I do. I mean, Madina is so full of life and she's so curious and she's not afraid to say when she doesn't know something and she's eager to learn and I admire that in her and I definitely strive to keep that kind of curiosity, that kind of wonder child quality alive in myself. I, I, that's why I love acting is because you always begin again and you you get a chance to see the world with new eyes. And Madina is that. She's new eyes and she's taking everything on, even just like the red carpet I, uh, when we were at TIFF. This is the Toronto Film Festival. Yes, we were getting ready together and and I was nervous that she was going to do this. And then I see video of her coming out of the car and she just looks like she is in her element, you know. <laughs> Medina, what was that like for you? It wasn't so easy for me hearing all these people calling my name, on your right, on your shoulders, please do this, do that. It was, <laughs> I wasn't used of that. I've never dreamt of standing on that red carpet. Actually, what I knew about the red carpet, it's just a carpet <laughs> that's supposed to be inside the house. <laughs> <laughs> and so when people told me, you're going to hit the red carpet, I was like, red carpet? Okay, I want to see the difference between the carpet that I know that is supposed to be inside the house and that carpet that you're really telling me. These are all new things to my eyes. And you've also had new food. Yeah, I've had new food. Like what? I tried the smoothie and this Mexican breakfast. Huevos rancheros. Ah. (laughs) What did you think of them? When I had it my very first time, it was nice. (laughs) She loved it. (laughs) Medina, your character Fiona flies on an airplane for the first time, sees snow for the first time. Are those Mm -hmm. all things that you had done before? No, no. We took a flight to South Africa, and that was her first flight. Yeah. To get to to shooting more of the movie. Mm -hmm. And you remember what you asked? Do you remember? (laughs) I don't. I remember. Uh Uh-huh. She asked whether we were going to hit traffic in the air. In the air? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that question makes sense to me. I think that's a good question. Yeah. The yeah. traffic in Kampala is quite awful. And, so <laughs> and because when I was very, very little, my friends used to tell me, you know, in the plane, up there, there is a road for the plane. So I said, okay. So we have traffic in Uganda by cars. And if it comes to that road in the air, what will happen? I think that makes sense. Yeah. Clearly, Medina, this was such a new experience for you. Yeah. But Lupita, I also have the impression that this was not just a typical film for you either. It sounds like this is the kind of experience you've never had before. No, it's not. Yeah, I've just never had this kind of experience before. I've never played a mother of four. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this film is because it was offering me an opportunity to really try something new. Harriet is a woman who sees the world very differently from how I see the world, how I was raised to to see the world. She's afraid of dreams. She's suspicious of them. In fact, they're quite the enemy to her because of all the disappointment that she's experienced in her life. And so she's preparing her children for a life of strife, which is all she's known. And she has to get to a place where she realizes that in order to truly love her daughter, she has to act out of radical hope, not 
fear, you know, and letting her pursue dreams that are way beyond her frame of reference. This film is based on a true story, and the mm -hmm. real-life characters it was based on were there on set when you were filming. Is that right? Yes, Robert Katende was there every single day. because He's he the was chess our ch teacher. Yes, yes, and he was our chess consultant. Will you each tell me one thing that you learned from the real-life people who you were playing, from meeting them and talking to them? Madina, what did you learn from Fiona? <laughs> one thing that I really learned from Fiona is before meeting her, I thought she's this kind of girl, she's a chess champion, she will be high, you know, I'm a grandmaster. So there is no reason of being here with you guys. But when I met her, she was down to earth and that's one thing that I really learned from her. And when we met, I wasn't scared of her, like she will tell me, you're playing my role? And do you know how to do this? Don't do that like that. But she was so quiet, and when we met, she smiled at me, and she asked me, how do I feel? And then I told her, I feel very fine, because doing the movie was like I'm doing my, my real life. And so when we met, this is one thing that I learned from her, always to stay down to earth. Mm. And I adore her. <laughs> yeah. Lupita, what was one thing that you learned from speaking with the real-life Harriet Mutesi? I learned a lot from being with her, but she had this aura. She has this presence that's very enigmatic. She reminds me of a baobab tree, you mm. know, the trees that grow in semi-arid arid conditions, and they have these huge trunks, and they withstand incredibly extreme weather conditions, yet they preserve themselves. That's Harriet. She preserves herself. And uh, they ha she had this guarded quality that I wanted to honor in my performance of her. But she's also very warm and uh, quite uh, uh, witty as well. And uh, th that's something that I just love to see that, like, you know, she's a full bodied person and she would sacrifice everything except her principles. Uh, which is so inspiring because in, in the kind of conditions she found herself in, the easiest thing would have been to just take on a, a new man to take care of her, her and her family. But she really wants to do things differently. And that kind of radical approach to life is something that then Fiona takes to the next level where, you know, you strike out on your own and try and make it work for you and your family. There's a scene in the film where Fiona is going to chess championships and winning, and, and Lupita, your character, her mother, says, what will happen when she returns to her life here in the slum? She won't belong in one place or another. She'll be a ghost. Mm -hmm. Have the two of you had conversations about what happens when this film is no longer in theaters, when there are no more red carpets, when there are no more paparazzi, when the spectacle surrounding this has gone away? Yeah. And this is an ongoing conversation. Uh, but, Madina, what do you want to do? You said it yesterday. What do you want to do more than anything? I want to go back to school. I want to go back to school. And I want to continue with acting and also dancing. But what I love about uh, Madina is that she shares that fierce, fierce determination uh, with Fiona of like finishing her education. Fiona didn't come to our set because she was in school. 
And, uh, you know, she while we're going to be in Uganda, she's going to be doing her final exams for uh, Form 6, which is the equivalent of, I think, year 12 or in America. Finishing and, high school, yeah. Yeah, and and so that kind of fierce, fierce determination, these are lives that are still very much being formed. This is Fiona's history, and she has a complete future ahead of her, and she knows she has to work to, to get to where she wants to get to. And I think Medina understands that too. In fact, she's been lamenting about not having enough time to study. Mm. Uh, and uh, I really admire that and encourage that in her. Medina, how similar was your childhood to Fiona's childhood that we see in the movie? Fiona, she sold maize, yeah. Selling corn. Yeah, and I also did. You did too? Yeah. And she followed her brother to get a cup of porridge. I also followed my neighbor to learn how to dance Mm. and do all other activities. And that's how... I left my mom because she wanted me to go to school. And the money that we were getting from the corn that we sell wasn't enough for three kids to go to school. And so she wanted me to go to school, and she had to leave me to go and learn something else and get money to go to school. And also, Fiona's mom left her to learn chess so that she can pursue her dream and she can go to school. That's how my life is similar to to her life. Medina, English is not your first language, is that correct? Yeah. So did you practice lines with each other on set? Was it difficult for you to do this entire movie in English? I mean, your English is obviously very, very good. Thank you. But you would practice. You, yeah. She went through a very thorough uh, workshopping process with Mira before Mira cast her. And so she worked extremely hard. And I think her discipline as a dancer came in very handy because she just would not stop, you know. Lupita, she really helped me, like, to get into the character all the time. I could see her getting ready to be in the character. And then I copy her. I could copy everything that she does, but in a silent way, because I never wanted her to see me doing what she was doing. Can you give me an example of something that you copied from her? Okay. I could see her getting ready. Like, we had tough scenes whereby we have to cry. And it was kind of hard for me to cry, but I saw her getting ready. She was sometimes quiet. And, you know, she was exercising all the time. So I could see her exercising. I was loosening my jaw, <laughs> like, you know, with my hands, so, you know. And then did you look across the room and see Madina doing the same thing? <laughs> no, she came up to me and she asked me what I was doing and why. And I told her I was loosening my jaw so that I could, you know, sometimes when you're nervous or something like that, your jaw gets caught up and then you can't really enunciate then she walked away and then shortly after that I walked by the set when she was doing a scene without me and between takes she was loosening her jaw it was very sweet (laughs) when this film is over and Medina you're back in school in Uganda and Lupita you're filming on your next set wherever that may be what do you think the relationship between the two of you will be oh uh, there's just no end in sight and no end desired Uh, We've talked to each other this past year at least 
once every two, three weeks we've talked. So I don't see that changing. I think we'll be seeing Madina again in the movies very soon with that kind of bright light that she has. And um, yeah, I, I am here for her if she will have me. <laughs> I'll have you. <laughs> Lupita Nyong'o and Madina Nalwanga, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> They're stars of the new movie, Queen of Katwe. What was that crazy Luganda song you were teaching me? Which one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. What was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mama, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mama, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mama, wololo. Mama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mama, yeah, yeah. Wololo. Yeah, yeah, Support for this podcast and the following message come from USA Network's new series, Falling Water, which explores the questions, what if someone could walk out of their dream and into yours? What if they could use your dreams against you without you ever knowing? This Thursday, producers of The Walking Dead and Homeland present Falling Water, a new original drama where the battle for your dreams is real and happens while you sleep. Because those who can control dreams can control the world. Falling Water, a new original series. Thursdays at 10, 9 central, only on USA Network. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. There's a new book out called TV The Book, which takes it upon itself to not only identify but also rank the top 100 comedies and dramas in the history of television. This book is written by Alan Sepinwall, who writes at hitfix.com, and Matt Zoller Seitz, who writes for New York Magazine and also for rogerebert.com. Matt and Alan uh, are friends. The two of them are friends. And also, uh, Matt and I have been acquainted for years, but Alan and I uh, are dear friends from uh, Press Tour. We've done a lot of hanging out. We do always try to let you know when uh, we're talking to people that we know personally, and I know both uh, Alan and Matt, and Alan and I in particular have spent a lot of time together at Press Tour. We are good friends. So welcome, Alan and Matt. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So first, I want you to explain, uh, Matt, how do you guys know each other? We know each other because for uh, a stretch of about 10 years, 1996 to 2006, we worked together on the TV beat at the Star Ledger in Newark, New Jersey, which is the paper that Tony Soprano picks up at the end of his driveway. Ah. And we wrote a column together called All TV, which was half of a broadsheet page filled with all kinds of stuff, you know, reviews, breaking news, analysis, and just silliness, like, you know, a lawsuit uh, by the survivors of the SS Minnow against all the people who <laughs> got off the island and didn't tell anybody that they were there, uh -huh. you know. And we did that the whole time we were there, and uh, we're and we're just, we're good friends. We're close friends, and, and uh, since uh, we both left the ledger, we stayed in contact constantly, and every single time that I would hang out with Alan, I would say, you know, I really miss working with you. What can we do to enable us to work together, like yeah. in a sustained way, like not just co-bylining one article, but like something a little more involved? Like a giant book. Like a giant book. 
giant book. A giant book where we attempt to identify the 100 greatest TV shows of all time and rank them in a way that's guaranteed to anger everyone. That's right. So <laughs> so tell me how you went about uh, coming up with this ranking of 100 shows. Well, originally we were going to try to tackle all of television. So right. it was going to be American and international and sitcoms and dramas and talk shows and kid shows and everything else. And so you would have not only The Sopranos competing with Cheers, but The Sopranos competing with Cheers and The Tonight Show and <laughs> Sesame Street and Wide World People of Sports. People would have hated you even they would, have been, they would have been like, that's weird. You know, there's like, here's the electric company right next to Edward R. Murrow's Harvest of Shame, <laughs> you know? And so, A, we needed the book to be manageable, but B, we needed to find a way to, like, actually compare and contrast shows. And we felt you can kind of come up with common criteria between a sitcom and a drama. You can't do it if you're spreading things further out and further out. Right. And so we looked and we said, what are the things that the shows that we love have in common? What sort of helps identify them the most? We came up with originally five categories, which were innovation, influence, consistency, performance slash characterization, storytelling slash filmmaking, and where we were each given up to 10 points to rank them. And the idea was if a show got perfect scores from both of us, it would get 100. We did it. We ran like about 250 shows through the system, through a spreadsheet. We wound up with so many ties that the top 100 was actually about 138. Also, the order seemed all wrong. And we said we need one more category. Which was peak. And peak would rank all of these shows that we had on that first list against each other. We chose the unit of measure as the season, because mm-hmm. um, that seemed like a nice way to split the difference between like the totality of the show's run versus right. what's the best episode of show X. Right. And once we did that, we eliminated all, I think all of the ties except for the top five, which was no matter how we would go and back and try to futz with the scores, you we still had this five-way tie. Five-way tie. So there is a long intro at the beginning of the book, which is essentially your argument about how to get to number one, which we, which we will talk about in a second. I was getting some previews of these spreadsheets as they were rolling in, and they were... Uh, they, they were intense, which are in the back of the book. Yes. You give uh, all these shows scores from one point to ten points based on a whole bunch of factors, consistency and, you know, peak and all you don't this. Know, you don't agree with all our criteria. You said that, like, we were giving too much weight to innovation and influence, for instance. I think I did say that. I think I did say that. So I, I was looking at these spreadsheets that you guys were filling out where you take all these shows and you assign them these point values. I do remember looking at it and thinking, this is basically just a giant book for people to fight about, I feel Pretty like. much, yeah. Yeah. Has that been the reception since the book came it out? It has been the reception. And I should say that, you know, Alan just gave you the official version of what the book is, but I'm yeah. going to give you the real version. Give me the real is, version. It's just a bunch of shows that Alan and I like, and we had to devise a system in order to rank them so that there was some kind of coherence to the book. So that you could talk about them. Well, yeah, but also so that people could like, I hate to use the word math in reference to stuff like this, but so people could check our math in the sense of when, you know, I say that I think something is more innovative than this other show or Alan thinks that the show is more consistent than some other show. What do we mean by that? Right. And as I looked at the spreadsheets, the thing that's, that's fascinating about it is that whether you agree or you don't agree, you see what is going into your evaluation of like where you might have scored a show lower than I did. I'm going to go after my personal things that I yell about. Mm -hmm. So I went through and I was looking at your sports night scores because that's one of my favorite shows. As everyone who listens to this show knows. And I noticed that both of you, for example, ranked that show a lot lower in sort of the innovation and influence stuff than I probably would have because they were, to me, that show's right on this this boundary line of getting away from laugh tracks and all that stuff. Mm. But I understand if you don't, then it would fall where it falls, right? I I can see the point you're making. I feel like... 
while they were one of the earlier ones to do it, it wasn't a, enough of a success for people who came later to be copying them as opposed to, sure. say, Malcolm in the Middle, which was sure. a big hit without a laugh track. Right. And I get that. My point is only that whether or not I agree with it, it is interesting to see kind of how you broke it down and say, well, you know, I would have given more points for this or less points for this. And I think that, like, looking through the list, for the most part, we're both happy roughly with where everything is. I wish Parks and Rec was higher than it is because that's yeah. one of my favorite shows of all time. And yeah. it finished somewhere around 50 and I feel it should be higher, but based on the criteria we used, including the dreaded innovation and influence, it didn't do very well there. Although I find it interesting that we both agreed that, you know, by virtue of being basically a splinter of the U.S. version of The Office, you couldn't consider it, you know, as innovative as The Office. And yet, all things considered, it still finished, what, like several slots above The Office? It did. Didn't it? And I think that was on the basis of, you know, we haven't talked about peak very much. Right. We had these five categories, uh, consistency, innovation, influence, performance slash characterization, and storytelling slash filmmaking. Each of us had 10 points to allocate to a show, and then we totaled up the scores. Mm-hmm. And we the goal was to weed this morass of titles down to something that was actually a nice round number. Uh, so you're number one of all time, comedies and dramas. Yeah. Tell me what it is. It's The Simpsons, and we did it yeah. for you, Linda, yeah. because so, we know yes. of your love of The Simpsons. Well, no, here's it's not that I don't love The Simpsons. I admire The Simpsons greatly, <laughs> but if you go back far enough in the history of this very podcast, you will find an entire segment in which we talked about how bonkers I thought it was when Matt mm-hmm. picked The Simpsons over Cheers as right. the best comedy mm-hmm. and how deeply, deeply wrong I thought that was. Yes, you wrote a column about I it. D- I wrote about it, and we talked about it on the show. I felt strongly. So what I'm curious about is, have you gotten mostly positive responses to no. that? Because obviously it's an incredibly <laughs> beloved show. Yeah. No, we have not. You have not? It's, we it's, have not. We've gotten a lot of this pushback. This is mostly an Alan thing, I have to say. If you read the intro, you yeah. learn that Matt wouldn't have necessarily picked oh, the Oh, he, 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 Clarence Darrow me over to his side. He sure did. <laughs> he there's, really a, did. there's a whole intro that kind of shows how that <laughs> argument went down. You should have seen you should have seen us debating this like in person. He was like Henry Fonda at the end of 12 Angry Men. It was unbelievable. Yeah, cuz a lot of it we were doing from our separate homes, but the last day was in Matt's kitchen around the dining room table and I would type something in Gchat and get up and pace around and it was wow. very very fondy. But no, we've gotten pushback on the Simpsons for a few reasons. You can't have an animated show number 1, you can't have a comedy over a drama like The Sopranos of the mm-hmm. Wire number 1, and also it's unfair because the show has been allegedly terrible for half of its run, which we don't which agree with anyway. No, but, but I did think the eight that you gave it for consistency was quite high. Well, but here's here's the p- argument I would make in favor of the eight, which yeah. is for about 13 years, it was as great a comedy as there has ever been in television. Like, that's longer than anything else has been good, let alone that good. And so for that, I'm almost not even judging the other 15 years, even though it kind of keeps yeah. going. And they're not as good. And I, I acknowledge that. But I do think it was so good for so long that I was giving it a little bit of a pass. And there. also, they're, they're not as good in relation to The Simpsons. You know, yeah. if, you, if you compare like the last, say, 10 years of The Simpsons against almost any other comedy on TV, it's solid stuff. It's really solid stuff. And there are many, many episodes in any given season, and not just Treehouse of Horror, which has been consistently excellent throughout, that you could, I think, stack up against the best years of The Simpsons. It's yeah. not they're not hitting it out of the park every week, but they do it way more often than they get credit for. And when people talk about how The Simpsons went downhill, what they're talking about is this trough of like three or four seasons in the middle of this almost 30-year run where they were kind of figuring things out. Hmm. Fair enough. Fair enough. So 
I'm sure that it occurred to you at various points. Like, here we are. We are two people who are going to sit down and decide all of television. <laughs> I don't know if you are aware of this, but you are both dudes. And you're both, we are? You're both white dudes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're both white dudes. You're roughly generationally, you know, comparable. How did you think about how your experiences might be different from other people's experiences in ways that, since Matt talked about these are shows that we like, how did you think about how your soft spots might be different from other people's soft spots? Well, we did talk about that. And in fact, we, we addressed it in the opening of the book. And, we, and I think we should boldface this in the next edition because it's really important, which is... Despite the title, this is just our list. Yeah. You know, we're not saying this is like, you know, I bring these 15, 10 commandments, yeah. <laughs> you know. I mean, this is just our list. Yeah, and sure. But as to your, your deeper point here, yeah, you know, we're dudes, and I think there's probably some dude choices in this book. But we've also got, you know, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, the Mary Tyler Moore show, Maud, Enlightened. We were very cognizant of the fact that we're both yeah. middle-aged white dudes with a lack of hair on top. And so <laughs> we tried to, as best as we could to not judge things entirely just from our own historical perspective. And that's why there's a whole bunch of stuff in the book, for instance, that aired before either of us was born. Right. But at the same time, I think it turns up much more in that honorable mention section you talked about, which we call a certain regard. That's much more where we're just playing favorites. And so like right. every show that Michael Mann ever produced is in there because Matt loves Michael Mann. Every show David Milch ever produced is in there because we both love David Milch, things like that. So th there are definitely dude choices and we're, we're well aware of that. Yeah. But I think if you actually look at at the top 100, it's as representative as I think TV can be given how white male-oriented the medium was for the great bulk of its history. Right. And that's true, too. What did you find to be your biggest, what powerful disagreements do you remember from writing this book? Well, I'm not crazy about Boardwalk Empire being in the top 100. Yeah. It was a situation where it was like it was like an Elmer Fudd Bugs Bunny cartoon where they're just completely running at each other constantly. Like I would I would artificially lower my scores to get Boardwalk Empire out of the top 100, and Alan <laughs> would crank it up, and it's like seriously a 10 in every category, Alan. And finally, it became one of these like, all right, I love this guy, I'm going to give him Boardwalk Empire. Interesting, yeah. interesting. So that's one, and the other is a show that we both agree should be on the list and should be as high as it is, which is Arrested Development, which I think finished in the top 25. Matt loves the Netflix season of Arrested Development. Indeed. And so, and the, the big point of contention is for whatever reason, I wound up writing the actual Arrested Development essay in the I book. See. I think it was Rock, Paper, Scissors. Yes, and I say a few unkind things about the Netflix season, which... You and then I have a parenthetical where I insult him a little bit. So, yeah, it oh, all worked dear. out. So, yeah, but I would stand up for that. And I would say if there is a second edition of this book, I would like to write a separate entry defending the fourth season of the rest of the development. <laughs> so so uh, what did you like about it? I would say that sh that fourth season of the rest of the development is fascinating to me because it is conceived for Netflix. They didn't just take the Fox show and import it over to Netflix and pretend that everything was the same. And they had those obstacles where they couldn't get the cast in the same place at the same time very often. So what they did was they constructed an entire season that was basically one incredibly epic episode of Arrested Development. Interesting. And the transitions, I love the transitions between sections of it where they they're, they're sort of skimming. It looks like a Netflix menu when you're choosing between one show and another. Like, they've even gone that far. And I like how if you watch the entire thing in succession, which, of course, that would melt your brain if you did that, but I recommend it, you really do get the sense of this being this complete thing. And and I especially love the setups and payoffs where you think people are alone, they're in a discrete space, and then five or six episodes down the line you find out that two characters were on the same plane or one of them was going into a convenience store yes. at the time somebody else was coming out. Sure. 
Is it the, exactly the same experience as the original Arrested Development? No, but that's kind of what I think is cool about it. Interesting. So what, Matt, what what were you most bummed to not be able to include, if anything? I have a soft spot for a lot of old Westerns because I'm from Dallas and we had a local station, Channel 11, that used to just run these old Westerns like all day on Saturday and I would watch them and I love the variety of them. I love that there were hour-long shows, half-hour shows, black and white color. Some of them were very sort of jovial and fun and light, like uh, Alias Smith and Jones or Maverick. And others were really pretty dark, like Gunsmoke. So I would personally like there to have been more Westerns in that in that top 100. But on the other hand, we do have Westerns represented in the book. How about you, Alan? I think because we had that a certain regard section, we were able to work in a lot of things that we couldn't get into the top 100. But even then, there would just be these like middle of the night sitting up bolt upright. Oh, my God, we left out Quantum Leap. (laughs) So I would reach out to our editor, Maddie Caldwell, and who was just eventually so sick of us doing this. Oh, God. And we just kept adding things. And even now, the book is out. It's been relatively successful so far. We keep talking about all the shows we didn't write about. Our hope is maybe five years from now, we do an updated edition. We not only re-rank the top 100, but we add in a whole bunch of other things that we didn't get to this time. One of the other things that I'm more keenly aware of by the week is the fact that TV is just such a moving target. Not just the medium itself, which is, you know, evolving in really incredible ways, but also just from uh, season to season and episode to episode within a show that you watch. Yeah. And the uh, the whole idea of doing a book like this is really ridiculous. It's not like film. Mm-hmm. And, like, there might be a director's cut where they add 20 minutes or take something sure. out or whatever, but it's basically the same thing. Yeah. It's not like a television show where you look at um, MASH season one and MASH season 11, sure. and it's like this is a very different show with some of the same actors. Right. The book is TV The Book. It is by Matt Zollersites and Alan Sepinwall. Thank you so much, you guys, for coming by. I'm glad Thank I could finally be on Pop Culture Happy Hour. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And, again, the book is uh, TV The Book, and we will be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Purple Carrot. Purple Carrot is changing the way we think about dinner with their exclusive plant-based meal kit, delivering delicious plant-based recipes and pre-portioned ingredients each week. Purple Carrot is on a mission to help you and the planet feel great. Discover the power of plants with Purple Carrot. Find out what they're serving up this week by visiting purplecarrot.com and be sure to use code NPR to get $30 off your first order. All right, let's open the podcast portal so we can hear from my friend Dan Pashman about the Sporkful. Hey, Stephen. So on the Sporkful podcast, we obsess about food to learn more about people. And right now we're doing a special series on race, culture, and food called Who Is This Restaurant For? Hope people will check it out. It's a great show. Check out The Sporkful from WNYC Studios wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much, Dan. Later, Stephen. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. I am here in the studio today. We're so excited. Always when we are in the studio with our friend Ari Shapiro. Hi, Ari. Hi, Linda. So the reason why we're here with Ari is that we are going to uh, we're going to play you a longer version of an interview that Ari did with Cameron Esposito and Rhea Butcher, who are the stars and the creators of the CISO show Take My Wife, which if you listen to this podcast, you've heard me talk about how much I love it. 
But before we hear that, we have a little thing that you guys talked about that yeah. doesn't, it's not part of like the bigger conversation. So we were kind of in the studio getting a level on their voices. Right. And I posed a question to them that my producer, Selena Simmons Duffin, had raised, which was Selena said, I identify as a gay woman, but I'm not comfortable with the term lesbian. And because these two comedians, Rhea and Cameron, both identify as lesbian, to get a level on their voice instead of asking what they had for breakfast, I asked them to weigh in on this. I often think that when people bristle at the word lesbian, it's because specifically female designators are something we're taught to avoid. So gay means everybody. Lesbian means women. And the way that we treat women in our culture leads us to shy away from anything that means specifically women. Wow. And so I I have learned from Rhea, who has always used that word with a lot of comfort, um, I used to wor- use the and word gay. Can on I stage interject that and- it wasn't always that way for me as well, and it was something that came to me after a lot of looking inward and understanding my internalized homophobia and a lot of my childhood since I was a tomboy, quote unquote, um, and played a lot of sports. Specifically, in my experience, playing sports as a woman, you're either told you're not good because you're a woman or you're a lesbian. And like that's used against you. Yeah, and it, so it is the word that's yelled at us. Yeah, you get yelled. You are called a lesbian as though it is the worst thing that you could possibly be as a woman. At least in the time period that I was growing up, I'm sure there are way different things now. <laughs> when my husband and I got married in 2004, so you weren't seeing a lot of men use the word husband, and you weren't seeing a lot of women use the word wife. For a while, it was really uncomfortable for me to refer to my husband. I would refer mm. to my spouse. And I thought that was just because like, well, you don't typically hear men say husband. And then I realized I think it was a little bit of misogyny that I figured mm-hmm. if I yeah. had a husband, then I had to be the woman. And, <laughs> right. It's very yeah. feminizing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is such complicated <laughs> yeah. stuff. And some yeah. other day we'll go to lunch and we'll all talk about this. And that's about as heavy as this conversation gets. It's yeah. all light from then on out. Yeah, it's so interesting, though. I was so glad that you guys had that conversation because it was totally fascinating. To well, me. the conversation we're about to hear ranges far and wide, just like their show, which is really, as you'll hear, very much about their lives. Even their characters are named Cameron and Rhea, which got a little weird for them being Cameron and Rhea on and off camera. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting uh, conversation. I'm happy that we can bring it to all of you guys. So let's hear that talk. Thematically? Everything in the show has happened. So Rhea has a day job in the show, and we have started comedy at really different times in our life. I started when I was in college. Rhea started when she was in her late 20s, and it's very competitive between us. However, the characters in the show do not relate in a one-to-one relationship to people in our real life, because if you did that, if you wrote the people in your real life directly into a show about your real life with your wife in it, you would not have any more friends. <laughs> so, do you, like, Cameron, do you actually borrow <laughs> Rhea's clothes? And Rhea, do you get annoyed by that? 100% that happens all the It just happened yesterday. But what was the article is... of clothing? It was a shirt. And Cameron was like, maybe I'll just try this one on and see how good it looks. Here's what's annoying. And then Rhea has amazing away. style. And some of her clothes fit me. Jackets. I guess what I'm saying is jackets. jackets. I really always want to borrow Rhea's jackets. Jackets is really the problem. Because... My jackets fit Cameron, but Cameron's jackets don't really fit me. So it's a real square and rectangle kind of a situation. You guys got married late last year, right? Yes. Yeah, we did. We got married in December. And you got married on stage. Is that true? (laughs) We did. Well, we got married, and this is Cameron again, we got married in a rock club that we both used to perform at in Chicago. It's a really cool venue that we both love. When we were trying to figure out how to plan our wedding, I found it really difficult because... 
Well, I never imagined getting married for a lot of my life because I didn't know I was gay. And so I just thought, oh, I probably will just not get married. And then I I always just imagined myself by myself at an altar in a suit. Right. (laughs) Like as a child, I'm I just, just like, well, this is what I want to do, and then, it, well, it's more of just like an amorphous blob next to me of just like, right, just like I'll be married like to shadow. whatever this is. Uh-huh. I don't know. Cameron, is that the first time you've been described as an amorphous blob? <laughs> well, right. No, I mean, I think Rhea and I actually have this in common. I I collected Kens when I was a little kid, like not Barbies. I collected Kens, huh. and I would just put them in a solitary tuxedo, and he'd just be waiting. I didn't realize what I meant by that, but um, yeah, we were trying to plan our wedding. It was hard to figure out what the details would be, and then we realized, hey, we know how to throw a show you know we know how to throw like a raging party and so we had we got married on stage at a venue that we often perform at we know the owners it's this legendary rock club where kind of every cool band that's come out of Chicago has performed there and we served pizza and hot dogs and Chicago it was, it was fun. Did anyone do a stand-up set? Uh, I mean, we wrote our own vows, so pretty much. And and did the vows get laughs? <laughs> they did. It'd be terrible if you bombed at your own wedding. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I felt like my vows were really earnest, and Rhea went first, and her vows were earnest but so funny. I was standing there going, Rhea, I cannot believe you're making me follow this. <laughs> I but love you. I am committed to you, but also this is a terrible position it's you're just putting me in. Every other show, I'm just. So that was the first big test of your marriage. Has this show been the biggest test to date? Do you want to answer simultaneously? <laughs> yeah, you ready? Three, two, one, go. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to expand on that first? You want me to go, Cameron? Okay. I mean, this show has been such an amazing experience, and I can't even. I, I still can't even believe that we got to make it or that I got to make it, but it has been a living nightmare. <laughs> and one and I say that laughing because it's a living nightmare to wake up, go work with the person that you're working with, and then come home and be at home with the person that you just spent 12 hours like trying to figure out where to park the production office van you know and then also be on camera with them and yeah, make sure you guys are producing and, directing starring right i mean like you're doing everything yeah. well, it was very confusing because and actually we had a director on this and i only say that because it was very confusing so you know we have a bed that we sleep in together there's also a bed on set by the end of production i was having dreams that our director <laughs> and our dp our director of photography were in our bedroom with us filming us at night because yeah. <laughs> it just starts to feel like there's no boundaries. And I also... Especially when your characters' names are your real names and the yes. scenes you're playing yes. out are things you've lived off camera. Of course. And there's a moment, there's a couple moments in the show where we were supposed to fight. And when we watched early footage, one thing that we watched was this fight that we have in episode one where I'm trying to convince Rhea to quit her job. And the initial footage of that fight, we seem so... We are straight up fighting. Angry at each other. <laughs> really? That it's... we were like, oh, this can't... Oh. People go would in just the show. People will real. be really scared. Yes. Yeah, it was too real. So lesbianism, the fact that you are two women married to each other, is central to the show and also so incidental. I mean, there's not explicit sex. There's not a big coming out scene. There are not any of the tropes that we associate with LGBT characters in TV and movies these days. Yes, that's on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> I love queer entertainment. Like, I, I'm really into queer representation in film so like I've seen every I mean I've seen the movie Carol so many times that Rhea told me I have to stop watching the movie Carol because I also own the book and I also 
own the book on tape, and I also have been tweeting with the screenwriter. So, like, I'm a little wow. bit into it. A my, little yeah. bit. She's she's having a multi-screen experience. Yeah. So many screens, <laughs> um, and one of them is made of paper. But all of that is reflective of a history, our history, our very rich history. You know, queer people, we fought to be here. We fought to come out to our families. We fought to have legal rights. We fought to inherit property from each other at the time of our passing. Like, we fought for all this. And that is what has been our history in television and film, are all these moments that end in tragedy because we didn't have a chance to have happy endings. And we felt, Rhea and I felt, an enormous responsibility, but then also an enormous gift, like what a gift it is, to be able to be sort of the first generation of of gay people, of lesbians, of people in the LGBT community that can have a happy ending. We can get married and we can just live a life in Los Angeles and we can just have jobs and it can be normative. And that isn't to say that things are fixed, because I do think sometimes we look at the advancements we've made in the last 15 years and we assume that things are perfect. And of course they aren't. We have so much work still to do, but it is a wonderful time to be able to do this job. There's one scene uh, where Cameron's parents are coming to visit and the stereotypical plot line would be, are we going to tell them that we're not just roommates? And <laughs> instead the plot line is Rhea has to buy a couch because you don't have any furniture. It's like not even a question. Do they know we're gay? How are we going to handle it? It doesn't even come up. Right. I mean, I think for us, you know, those are things that did come up in our lives, but that's not what comes up in our lives now. You know, Cameron and I have both come out to our family and come out to our friends, and we've been living our lives very out for many, many years. And so we wanted to make a show that is about what comes after that and what life is like after you've come out and the problems and happiness that you find um, after you've come out, after you've been living that life and how important it is to have a couch for your, for your, right. <laughs> your quote unquote right. in-laws right. or your girlfriend's parents. I've heard you compare this show to I Love Lucy, which isn't the most obvious comparison. Explain what you mean by that. I mean, our pitch of the show was like, I love Lucy, except we're both. Lucy loves Lucy. L- yeah. Lucy loves Lucy. <laughs> Lucy loves Lucy. Also, we're both Desi at the same time. Right. <laughs> it's a little bit of both. Hair product. Yeah. Desi wore like a lot of hair product. Anyway, you know, that to me is like the couple that was making amazing entertainment together. A lot of times when people see us on stage, because we perform separately, we have separate stand-up acts, but we also host a show together in Los Angeles, which is what the show, the television show Take My Wife is based on. You mean you're like MCs of a comedy stand-up show with different performers? That's right. We Yes, we are MCs of a show called Put Your Hands Together that's here at the UCB Theater in Los Angeles. And Andy Kindler who's a great comic and a friend of ours, years ago. Do you remember this moment? when I do. We walked off stage and he said to us like, oh, you guys are doing vaudeville. Oh, wow. Because, because when we're on stage separately, we have very, well, what would you say your separate comedic persona is? Like your stand-up persona when I'm not around? Pretty dry and uh, mm, straightforward. I don't know. That's weird. Yeah, you're gay forward. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> no, you're, you're cool. You're, you're kind you're... of a straight-faced comedian, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. You're cool. Thanks, you're guys. calm and confident. <laughs> I think I'm a little bit more, I'm very positive and I'm very performative. Rhea's kind of chill. Um, but together, I think we do something a little bit different, which is I speak for a full paragraph and then Rhea says one perfect sentence. Stand-up is so personal and so often solitary. Did you both find it difficult to approach it as a two-person project? 
that is what I love about working with Rhea because so often, you know, the history of the reason that that the show is even titled what it is, that that joke, like, take my wife, please. So often relationships are a topic that people mine in stand up and we never get to hear from the other side. Mm. And also, historically, this is a job that has been mostly done by men. So it's it's a lot of straight male stand ups on stage talking about women that are off stage. And now we're in this wonderful moment where female comics are much more prevalent. So we are hearing the opposite perspective. But what I love about working with Rhea is that you don't have to believe me about what our relationship is like. You can hear the opposite viewpoint right here. Like, you know, here's somebody else talking, telling the same story from a different perspective. There are several scenes where you're getting pushback stereotype discrimination about being female comics or lady comics, or are you more Amy Schumer or Sarah Silverman? How much of that is stuff that you've encountered in real life? I think we might have different experiences with this. I would love to hear what your experience is, Rhea. Well, I haven't had that experience as much, and it could be simply because I haven't been doing stand-up as long as Cameron. And I also started doing comedy because Cameron hosted an open mic in Chicago where we started, and that open mic was an extension, in some ways, of a class that she was teaching that was just for women to learn how to do stand-up. And so this open mic was a place that had a lot of women in it. So when I started doing stand-up, to me, it wasn't an odd thing that women were doing stand-up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was a unique place that she created in uh, Chicago because not just women, but uh, queer people, people of color, like basically anyone that is like, hey, can this person be funny? Was at this open mic. And huh. it created a very, uh, just a welcoming sort of clubhouse environment. Cameron, did you create that because of a sense that people were asking, can these kinds of people be funny? Yeah, so Rhea and I started 10 years apart, and that's actually a really significant 10 years in the comedy world. In a, in a lot of ways, we have kind of a mentor relationship in our careers. I say in our careers because while I was doing comedy, Rhea was kind of learning a lot of life skills that I didn't Lack. have because I because I was <laughs> focusing so much on turning my art into a business. Um, and so I think... One thing that really works about our relationship is that I have a ton of comedy as a business experience, and then Rhea has a lot of practical life experience. And like Cameron is my mentor in comedy, but I am her mentor in the DMV. Right, for exactly. <laughs> the 10 years between Rhea and I, what happened in that 10 years? Do you remember this Christopher Hitchens article? This and was a 2007 Vanity Fair article by Christopher Hitchens called Why Women Aren't Funny. Yowzer. And then it felt like every newspaper, every blog, every had to have a take on this. And mm. I was like a couple years into my stand-up career. And I started getting phone calls from people that expected me to answer this question to yeah. justify my existence. You know, like... So please tell me, do you think women are funny? I mean, I this is my job. I started commenting on answering some of the questions in these interviews. And then what I decided to do was to, to see if I could train women to have their first stand-up set. Wow. It's called uh, Feminine Comique. It still runs in Chicago. I trained 100 women. I passed it on to another awesome female comic named Kelsey Huff. And she's trained another 200 women. And bonus, you got a wife. I got a wife out of it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. One of the big themes of the show is this tension of Rhea being later to the comedy game than Cameron and not being as famous and the fear that you're only 
Cameron's girlfriend. I wonder if filming the show has changed that for you or if working through it on camera has changed it for you. It absolutely has. It had begun to change when we were writing this because when we first moved to Los Angeles, I essentially was an open micer and, you know, that was my level. And when we moved to Los Angeles, I even had to start over again at that. It was a wild position to be in, but I've since um, recorded and released a stand-up album on Kill Rockstars, and it came out at number one on iTunes, and like so many things have happened and gone really well, and, and I, I feel very good about where I'm at, and it, it really was cathartic to put that in the show, because I think as two women, we're always working out this dynamic that doesn't... We don't have a blueprint for it, like Cameron was saying about... Um, setting up our wedding like we don't have those quote-unquote gender roles to fall into and so we're sort of always negotiating our relationship and our partnership and that was a sort of thorn to not feel like we're we're equals the way we treat each other in business and in our relationship is as equals and when there is this external force coming in that's saying like oh well you're definitely not equals it it then starts to bleed into your relationship and mm. you have to have the power within the relationship to push that back out and i think since putting out the show and putting that out there that power has sort of been recharged right you know one one thing that i know in the experience of doing this a little bit longer is that rio will catch up with me because if you want to do this as a lifelong career and you happen to be lucky enough to live a long life, you're going to be going through an enormous amount of ups and downs. Like You bomb on stage the same way that you bomb a project or a show or a book. You know, like things go really well and things don't go well. And this is something that I have believed since I met Rhea, which is that she has this inherent talent and this viewpoint and so much to say. And it's really wonderful to see, you know, Rhea believing that and getting that feedback from the outside world as well. And... You know, I have been trying to pave a path for her and, you know, trample things down so that she can follow me and so that she can catch up. And at the same time, like, I am going to fight to be better than her for the rest of my life because that's what <laughs> yeah. being a comic is. You're never going to be a better comic than me. You're never going to be a better comic than me. <laughs> I see this devolving into a wrestling match, but maybe this. <laughs> Just arm wrestling only. Just arm wrestling. Are there going to be more episodes? Well... That is the we'll find enormous out. hope, and we're <laughs> talking about it right now. And the the best thing people can do is let CISO, and that's spelled S-E-E-S-O, because it's still a nascent uh, network, and so we have to spell it. Uh, just let CISO know that you love the show and that you want more episodes. Cameron Esposito and Rhea Butcher, the creators and stars of Take My Wife. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. Well, thanks so much. This has been so much fun. Yeah, total pleasure. 